Let's have a word of prayer and we'll look into our Bible study. Father, we are thankful that uh, we can look off unto your son, Jesus Christ, who has uh, finished the race that you set before him. And we're still down here running this race and we can look off to him. We can remember him as we face different challenges in life. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we can set our minds on who we are as believers in Christ at your right hand and that we might find that to be a real source of peace, uh, a different perspective on life in this world. We thank you for that and for your word as we look at it today. Amen. Um, most of what I passed down here on page 49, just uh, to make this clear, we already have covered. It had to do with um, contentment, which we looked at last week. Uh, and finding God's grace to be sufficient when we're facing challenges and being reminded of the fact that uh, sometimes when we're facing challenges, we want those challenges to go away because we feel like they're impeding our ability to do what God wants us to do. But in reality, if, they're in, if they really are impeding us from doing what God wants us to do, what they are impeding is our relying on ourselves, or our going about God's work by our own efforts, the way we are accustomed to going through those things. And that isn't the way we want, want to do these things anyway. We want the work, when it's all said and done, to be God's work. And so uh, keeping that in mind, uh, that's one of the reasons that Paul said, hey, I, I will rejoice in being weak so that God's strength can be seen. Uh, and then at the, the last point, part, if you happen to, I'm just saying, if you're looking on the outline, uh, sections F and G under there, we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about the problem of the fear of death, which the unbeliever has. Uh, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, you should not have a fear of death. It, it, you're, you're not going out seeking to die. Um, you're not going to try to do that. That shouldn't be what, what you're trying to do. But you ought to be able to to welcome it. Uh, in other words, it's not just as important that you live well, but it's also important that you face death well, if that's what God's chosen for you to do. Uh, and we, as we've said many times, we always trust that we're that generation that uh, will be alive when the Lord returns. So I'm on page 50 on that outline. If you're following along, if you're not, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll look in the Word of God. That's where we need to see that. This is just a, a way of helping you review uh, things that we're uh, looking at in the Word of God. Today, what we want to look at is we want to uh, further look at, we're dealing, well, we're dealing with our promises from God. In other words, Jim, if you were here during um, Jim's class at 945, uh, Jim is in Jude, and Jim started to get into today in Jude 3, the fact that there is what we call the faith. And the faith are the collection of promises that God's made to us that comprise our Christian life. And there's a lot of things. And one of the things that Jim pointed out today is that the Christian life, the sum total of the Christian life, is not just not doing bad things. It's not just dealing with your spiritual enemies. In fact, that hopefully is a small part. Sometimes when you're learning the Christian life, it seems like a big part. You know, you're just dealing with spiritual enemies all the time. But in reality, hopefully, that's a small part of your Christian life because a big part of your Christian life is relating to other believers, being engaged with other believers, doing the will of God. In fact, with the exception of perhaps the gift of evangelism, most of the spiritual gifts, think about this in terms of yourself right now, your service 
in most days really is going to be focused primarily on believers, how you minister to believers, because that's the focus of most of the spiritual gifts, with the exception primarily of the gift of evangelism that reaches out to those outside the body of Christ. And so the large portion of your Christian life is going to consist of God's promises for how you can relate to other people. But one of these sets of promises or groups of promises that we've been looking at is how God's promises are, are how what promises, excuse me, God's directed to us that affect how we handle adversity or problems. And this too is not just about you, and it's not just about dealing with the world system or Satan or your sin nature. You deal with adversity as an encouragement and help to others in the body of Christ. Other people watch you. Other believers watch you. If you have family at home, as a parent, your children are watching you. As children, your parents are watching you. Spouses are watching each other. We're watching each other as friends. And as we watch that, we can be saying over here, hey, we depend on God, and God is very important, and we ought to be living the Christian life. And then over here, what, what our kids are watching, what our spouse is watching, what our parents are watching, or friends, is a person that is carnal all the time. They're always grumpy. They're grouchy. They're yelling. They're just always mad, you know. Or they're under satanic attack, and they've always got a cloud over their head. Oh, my life, my life, it's so sad. Oh, I have so many problems. It's things like that. Or they see us out there chasing after everything that the world says we have to have. Gotta go. I'd like to stay and visit, but I got work to do. Why? Well, because work's more important than you are right now, because I gotta make a lot of money for things like that. Uh, whatever it might be. We're just... It's all these things, and those are just, in each one of those, I hope you all know, I've given you like one little, one little thing out of each one of those spiritual enemies. But just ask yourself, is that what the believers around us are watching? Is that what they see? So when we're looking at how we deal with adversity, how we deal with pressures, how we deal with problems, do we ever stop to think about the fact that it's not just about how I deal with it, it's about how I deal with it affects other people, how it demonstrates or models for them how to handle uh, these things. I got I got frustrated this morning, this very morning. I had was getting frustrated, and I was just like, oh, like this. And I had to, <laughs> the beginning of Jim's class, I had to sit in my chair for a little while, and I had to walk through the armor of God because I thought, I'm not going to muscle through this. I could try to muscle through it, but I can guarantee you, if I don't put on the armor of God, I'm going to be dependent on my flesh. I'm going to be depending on my flesh while I try to pay attention to Jim's class, and I know how that goes. Then I'm going to go, Jim didn't say that right, because that's the way my flesh might react. I'm not saying he did say anything wrong. I'm just saying that's the way my flesh would react. I wouldn't say it like that, you know? And that'd be the fleshly reaction that I might have. If I don't deal, and you're saying, well, I thought that's Satan. Yeah, but you know what? If you give in to satanic attack, what do you rely on? You're, you're going back to relying on your own flesh. See? And so how you respond to adversity and problems and conflict affects the, other, the people that are around you and how you relate to them, the testimony you have before them. And so that's why I think that this is very important in understanding these promises uh, from God. Uh, so with that then, 
let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, because both of the, the texts that we want to look at today are in 1 Peter 2, and both of them are about suffering and persecution, how you face suffering and persecution. Now, the thing is, I, I, I'm looking at everybody that's here today, I'm looking at your names anyway, and there's none of us that, to my knowledge, are suffering for being a Christian that I know of. Maybe some of you are. I'm not really suffering for the most part for being a Christian. Uh, but there are believers around the world that are suffering for believing a Christ, for being a Christian. In fact, in our situation right now, um, maybe you can relate. I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but you can relate to the fact that there are believers in other parts of the world that got together with other believers today, even though their government told them they're not supposed to get together. And they probably didn't say, well, you can't get together because you're a Christian. They always find, now this isn't always the case, but they say they always find some sort of a legal precedent or a legal case that says why those people shouldn't be getting together like that. And they use that as an excuse to, to make believers also be quiet uh, in those type, type of governments. So, Maybe this is something that might give us an appreciation for what brothers and sisters in Christ go through around the world. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that are jailed. There are brothers and sisters in Christ that have been beat up. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ that have been put to death. In fact, during the history of the church, thousands upon thousands of believers over the centuries, perhaps millions of believers, have actually given their lives for the Christian faith. Uh, you might think millions sounds like an exaggeration, but I don't think it probably is in the last 2,000 years of church history. Chat box blocking your face. The chat box is blocking my face? I don't, the chat box wasn't even up. Okay, help him. Good now. Is it good now? Oh, yeah, it must be. Yeah. Must, there we go. Must have been on your end, so. Yes. So, okay. So as we talk about suffering today, uh, in this, let's just put in with First Peter chapter two. I think what, what, way too much introduction today. I'm sorry. We're going to go to First Peter chapter two. I'm going to begin reading with verse eleven, where uh, Peter says to us, beginning in verse eleven, beloved, I encourage you as uh, sojourners and aliens. Those two terms are those that live alongside those that are at home. And then uh, further, the next word, those that live alongside those that are alongside those at home. In other words, so you've got people that are, you've got people that are kind of residing in an area that's not their home. And you've got people in an area that they're passing through. So they're even less at home. And he uses both of these words. Paul uses similar terms to describe us, which by the way, is really good for us remembering this world is not my home. It's not your home. We are not residents here. And we really are not citizens here. Our citizenship is in heavens. And so he says, I'm encouraging you as sojourners and aliens that you should abstain from fleshly lusts or cravings, which act as a soldier or a war against your soul. That... Uh, that having then your conduct among the Gentiles in a good manner or in something that they visibly can see in order that in which they speak evil or slander uh, against you, they may, on account of your good deeds, by seeing you actually do these good things, 
observing those, they might glorify God in the day of visitation. We're not going to get into probably, there's two possibilities on the day of visitation. I wasn't going to deal with it. It could be the day that Christ comes. And if they maybe see what we've done, it may God use that, God may use that to get their attention so that they end up believing the gospel. That's part of it. But the other part might be the day of visitation because the because of the emphasis of this word. If the word visitation is a word to is a verb form, the word uh, bishop here, and so it could be uh, the day in which the bishops start bishoping again, which is kind of what he says over in chapter five. But what he's saying in these introductory verses is you need to think about what your lifestyle says to those people that are out there as you are traveling in a place that's not really your home. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every human creation. Now, our Bibles have institution, every human institution, but in Greek, it's a creation of mankind. Every institution, uh, creation of mankind, whether to, to the king as the one that's over us, as to leaders or governors that interlinear has here, uh, as those that are being sent by him, and I would take by him that could be either him could be the king has sent these people, or as Paul says in Romans 13, it could be that God has sent these people into this. And these governors, these leaders are there, sent to avenge evildoers, but a praise to those that are doing good. Because in this way, it is God's will that that by doing good or while doing good, you silence the foolishness of men in ignorance, or ignorant men in their foolishness. It says, as free ones, not having your freedom as a covering for evil, but as slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Now we'll just stop here. First, and we'll deal with this first part. First thing he actually tells them to do uh, in what they're supposed to be doing is that they're sub supposed to submit to those people who are over them in authority. And he goes through a list of these things. Now, keep in mind that when Peter is writing this, the king to whom he is referring, the specific king ruling at this time, is Nero, who is not friendly towards Christians, who was uh, a very vile man in many ways, and uh, without delineating all the things that, that Nero was known for. And yet Paul says to submit to him. Or Peter, excuse me. This is Peter. Paul elsewhere tells us the same thing in Romans 13. But Paul makes the point for us in verse 15, For it is God's will that by your doing that which is good, or doing right according to the New American Standard, but doing good, you silence the ignorance of these foolish men. And the foolish meaning, these people don't really operate with a proper frame of mind up here. And so they operate over here in a completely different capacity. And Paul says, you silence them by you doing the right thing, by you living the way God really wants you to be living as believers out here. Now that, in, it, that's kind of embedded in there. There's a little bit of a promise, if you understand what he's saying here, that God can actually use your good works to shut them up. Um, we're going to see more to this down below in the context here. And then he goes through and he talks about all these different ways that we relate to, to different people. I find it very interesting in verse 17 that while he says to honor all men, love 
is really reserved primarily for the brotherhood. He doesn't say love them exclusively, exclusively, but he really brings out here, um, uh, brings out something that uh, again, again and again, we are reminded of that we are to be those who are loving the brothers. That's the command that Jesus Christ left us is to love one another. And uh, so he says again, love the brotherhood. Then he goes on, and I want to go down to verse 18. He says, And slaves, be in submission to your masters with respect to all things, not only to those who are good and those who are forbearing. Forbearing means they're easygoing. They let it go. They told you to do this. It didn't happen quite right. They don't jump all over your case. They actually kind of, that's okay. It's okay. We'll get to it tomorrow. You know, that would be the idea of this uh, word that's, tr that's translated gentle. Um, it's the word that's used in uh, Philippians chapter 4, and it's translated moderation, but it's built on a form of the word vain that means without a goal. And the idea of the word, you'd say, don't have a goal. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you have a goal, but you know what? The problem is sometimes when you're together, you go, this is the way it ought to be. This is the best way it ought to be. And everybody goes, I don't think so. And you're like, okay, well, we'll let that go. We're fine. Uh, because just because you think it's the best way or you think it's something, sometimes you just need to just let go of that thing uh, and realize there's something more important than you getting your way. And so he says sometimes you're going to have masters that are going to be kind of easygoing on things like this. Uh, but also he goes to those who are unreasonable. And it's those that are hard or harsh. It's it's the a word in the Greek that means crooked or twisted and there's different ways crooked or twisted can, can be emphasized, but the idea is sometimes you've got masters, these people had masters that they worked for, and they were hard. Man, it's like, I, I put in 15 hours today. You didn't get that thing done? You're back, you're out there. You aren't, you, your head is not going to hit the pillow until that is finished. And that's the way those masters might be. And then we're still going to give you a thrashing for not getting it done on my timeline. And so he says, you submit to all of those. See, it's always easy to say, I'll submit to those people that... Uh, are doing good things. Those guys that treat me well, but the guys that treat me harsh, I don't want to, I don't want to submit to them. And then Peter's saying, yeah, you even submit to those guys that are harsh in this. And then he says, and here's, here's part of our promise now. Here's one of the promises for this. And if you have a new American standard, they have, they have fines in italics because it's not actually part of the text. Literally for this is favor or this is grace from a long, or, um, Oh, no, excuse me. I've got to get this. For this is grace, if on account of conscience, you bear grief, suffering unjustly. So he says, God's the one that gives you the grace that because of your conscience, because you're concerned about how other people perceive what you're doing, that you suffer and sometimes you suffer in an unfair manner. One of the things, you know, when you're still raising kids, you probably hear once in a while, is your kids tell you, that's not fair. That's not fair. And parents, primarily because of our own personal experience, we sometimes turn to the kid, kids and say, get used to it. That's life. <laughs> because it is. I mean, just think of how often in life you find out it's just not fair. It's not fair. And there's all kinds of things we could say it's not fair. In this case, not fair is sometimes you're going to suffer and it's going to be unjust. They're going to, they're, people are going to mistreat you for something, and it's not going to be for the right thing. Um, point in case, in Acts 16, 
when Paul and Silas, and uh, we believe Luke and Timothy are, well, we know Timothy's traveling with him. We, Luke, we believe Luke is there also. But as they're traveling back and forth, and he's been proclaiming the gospel, they begin to have this girl that has this, this demonic spirit. And this she's saying to them, these are messengers of the Most High, and they're proclaiming unto you a way of salvation. Not the way, a way of salvation. In other words, this is just one, and this irritates Paul. And it says, after not, or uh, not, I'm trying to remember, it's not after many days, I don't have it open in front of me. But in other words, Paul actually tolerated this for a while. He didn't do it two days in or three days in. He did this after a little, he put up with it for a while. But finally, it, it wore on him, and he turned around, and he cast the demon out of the girl. Her masters got a lot of money from her telling the future, I'm putting this in quotes because she wasn't really telling the future, it's just that the demons could affect things behind the scenes, so it maybe give the illusion that she was telling people what were happening. And so they dragged Paul and Silas before the city officials, and they accused them of acting contrary to Roman law and upsetting the whole course of things. They hadn't done anything. The only thing they'd done is they'd hurt those two guys' pocketbooks. That's all they'd done. And so they take Paul and Silas, and without any serious trial or determining of the facts, they stretch Paul and Silas out across whatever they'd pull them down on, and they whipped them. And I've told you this before, the Greek is so graphic because the command from the from the magistrate, the command over the guys that are whipping them, is written in the Greek in such a way to say that he kept kept on telling them to whip them more. So it's like they'd whip them, and then he'd say, "Give them some more," and they'd whip them three or four or five more times, and maybe in turn and look, and he could give them some more. And so they really whipped these guys. They they that was an unjust beating. In fact, Paul the very next day when they tried to. Uh, when they call for them, Paul says, is it right to beat a Roman citizen? He does the same thing over in Acts chapter 20. And they're like, oh no, man, we are in so much trouble because we didn't know you were a Roman citizen and we think we're in trouble now. What they did to Paul and Silas was unjust. If they would have tested the facts, they would have found they hadn't done anything to upset Roman law. They hadn't done anything like that. So they actually suffered for something wrong. Not something wrong they did, but for something that they were accused of, and it was wrong. And you know what? In life, that's going to happen. And it's going to happen to believers at times, that people are going to make accusations. And just wait for what Paul's going to, or what Peter's going to say to us here in a little bit. Peter's going to say something to us that I think is very important about the way we normally respond in the way Peter says we should respond. So he says, you even submit. Now, in this context, he's talking about slaves submitting to masters, even if you suffer unjustly. But I believe he's focusing on them. But this also fits this larger context, which he hasn't fully developed. Uh, so he goes on in verse 20. He says, for what fame, what fame? In other words, is, is there any fame? Is a word? Does a word go out that if you sin and you are treated harshly and you are patient with it, do people go, oh, wow, that guy robbed a bank at gunpoint, and then they really beat him severely, and you should have seen him. He took that beating just quite, you know, they wouldn't go, man, he got what he did, and they should have beaten him more because it didn't bring anything out of him. But he says, but if when you do what is right, so you're doing the right thing, 
Yeah, see, sometimes you're going to suffer for doing the right thing. And you deal, take it patiently. That is, here it is, that's grace from alongside of God. Grace from alongside of God, meaning the only, really what, when he uses this preposition uh, with God, it's the word para, it's the word to be parallel to. And it has the idea that we right now are sitting beside God in the person of Jesus Christ, and there's grace there that we find. Hebrews 4.16 tells us we can find grace at the throne of grace. And he says that there's grace there from alongside of God. In that grace, we looked at this last week, will give you strength in the inner man to be able to respond well, even to unjust, harsh treatment even treatment that might be against you for doing the right thing. And that's the kind of thing, he says, where there's fame, people are going to go, did you hear about them? They actually did this, and they were still beaten. And yet, when they were being beaten, they did not respond like an unrighteous person normally would. And there was a fame to that. Now, from here, let's go down to verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Paul tells us this at the end of Philippians. Philippians 1.29. It was given to you not only to believe, but it was also given to you to suffer. And here he says, you were called for this purpose. Part of your, part of your calling. Oh, yeah, this, this is a shock. You never tell this. When, when pop churches, when mega churches, well, I shouldn't pick on mega churches. You can be a little church like us, and you can do the same thing and say, Jesus will make your life great. Believe in Jesus Christ, and he'll fix all your problems. Oh, and let's make sure we know suffering's going to follow. <laughs> we don't advertise that. But he actually says here, you are actually called to suffer. That's part of God's plan for us as believers. And we've been over this in other passages of Scripture. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. There have been many people in the history of the church that have taken verse 21 and they follow, and they have taken only that last snippet of that verse there, leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. And they say we should study the Gospels and learn to do everything Jesus did. He was our perfect example in all of these things. Jesus wasn't a perfect example in everything. I've gone fishing in a boat, and I've never gotten out and walked on the water. I fished. I fished in boats when I've been out in some kind of icky weather, bad storms. I have never been able to stand up and say, be muzzled like Jesus did and have the winds calm. There's lots of people I've known that are sick. I've prayed for them intensely in the midst of their illnesses and problems. But God has never, never healed them through my laying hands on them or anything like that. Jesus did all kinds of things like this. So Jesus is not my example in everything. What he, he is my example for love. We have that from John 13 to serve. But here's another place where he is an example. He's an example for how we're supposed to suffer. And what did he do? Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And this word for deceit is not the word um, uh, pseudos, uh, which, or sude, which would be a lie. This is the word uh, uh, dalos, which, are, which is a guy, well, our, 
old English used to translate it guile. It's a deceit that really is very selfish. You mislead somebody or, or deceive them because there's something you want to get out of this situation or get out of them. And so he says here, there was nothing wrong. Jesus didn't have any hidden motives. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was suffering as an innocent. And so then he goes on, he says, and this is his example. Number one, he's not suffering because of bad things he's done. That's the point of verse 22, which is exactly what he was encouraging them to do. Suffer for the right thing. Don't suffer for the wrong. Verse 23, and being reviled. Uh, and that word revile means to be harshly, cruelly, viciously insulted. A person can insult you. And uh, I, I, I use this as an example. A couple years ago, before the Orths uh, left for uh, P&G, um, the Orths and the Garnicks and some others, we were out at uh, Ben and Lindsay's. But the reason I mentioned the Garnicks is because the kids were playing uh, a game that that my sister's family taught us where you're throwing these wooden uh, sticks at these blocks and they're out there and I'm watching the kids play this. I kind of showed them how to play it and then the kids were playing it back and forth and they're out there insulting each other. But it's, it's you know, it's what the kids call, they're smack talk. They were, they were, they were having fun putting each other down, you know, doing stuff like that. They weren't really being mean intentionally trying to really hurt anybody. They're just, having fun playing this as a game back and forth. Well, this is not that kind of a game. This is actually talk or insults that are intended, intended to really hurt people, to make people really feel bad by insulting their character. Uh, and you can do that without calling a person stupid or dumb. I hope you all understand that. You can insult a person's character by other things that you say that belittle that person and essentially uh, tell that person, you know, you're kind of an idiot that that's the way you are without ever using the word idiot, you know. So um, my, my wife didn't insult me this morning because I ran into something. I have a problem with, I don't, my peripheral doesn't work right and I run into stuff and I smacked my head this morning and she could have made some comments that were demeaning and would have been hurt. She didn't do that. She went and got me an ice pack to put on my head, which I really appreciated. But you get the idea. There's ways that you can say things that can be hurtful. And he says, that's what people do while being reviled or being harshly, cruelly insulted. He did not insult in return. Goes on and he says, uh, and he uttered no threats, but kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, as he hangs on the cross, he says, I, and as he, and he endures all this and the whipping and everything that he went through, he was able to know that all of that was within God's plan. And God was the one that was in charge of this. This is God the Father. Now, this is God the Son. He's absolutely equal with the Father, but he's suffering in the realm of a human nature. And in the realm of his human nature, he had to know that the Father was in charge of everything that took place. And nothing was happening that the Father did not allow, did not plan for in this. The encouragement here, I think, for us to stop and think about this is, Sometimes you're going to suffer, and like the Lord Jesus Christ, people are going to insult you. They're going to do harsh things to you, and our human nature is to retaliate. And sometimes we retaliate by physically lashing out and smacking, going right immediately to fisticuffs, things like that. Sometimes we retaliate with our mouth. We may never lay a hand on a person, but we open our mouth, and our mouth just spews venom. 
and it hurts people. And he says, we should not be known as doing that when people are mistreating us. Otherwise, how are we acting any different than the way those people act? So when they do that, we shouldn't be those people that are trying to do to, to function in this way. In fact, one of the things that's said about Jesus Christ is that like a, 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 you, a you sheep that is dumb, this is out of Isaiah 53, but as a you sheep that is dumb before her shears, so he did not utter a word. In other words, when remember when they were putting him on trial? Jesus could have left and right put every one of those, those priests, priestly people and Pharisees, he could have put all of them in their place because he had done that previously during his earthly ministry. But he endured that because it was now time for him to endure those sufferings. And that is always the case for us. It is never a point in time for us to put other people in their place. We think it is. In fact, one of the things I appreciated about Jim's class this morning as he was talking, just kind of getting into and hinting at it, it is not God's job for me to defend the faith. And by the faith, most people think our doctrinal statement, almost almost unanimously Christians think it's talking about Christian doctrine, the sum total of Christian doctrine. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about creation? That's not what it is about. That is not what he's talking about. And people think that we're supposed to argue, and so there are Christians that have taken it upon themselves for the last century, and I'm sure through much of the history of the church, but fundamentalism especially really took up the, took up the brandishment, or took, brandished the, the, uh, the shield and the, the sword of fighting for the faith and trying to put the unbelievers in their place that you can't say that about God, you can't say that about creation. And that is not what Jude's talking about. And Jim was already getting to that this morning. So I'm kind of rehashing a little bit of what he said. That That's not what, see, and we all want to open up and spew at the mouth. And sometimes when we do those things, uh, we just, we spew venom and it comes out the way we respond to these types of things goes on in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body. Not his own sins, it already established that. He didn't have any sins. He was absolutely sinless, that we might die to sin and live righteously, for by his wounds we are healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the uh, bishop, that same word for bishop, the bishop of your souls. Jesus Christ is ultimately the one that looks out for and looks out over us as sheep. He has people down here like myself, that have a, a very sub-role in that down here on earth, but ultimately he's the one that really is our shepherd and the one that really is looking out for us. So in simple terms, just as a quick review here, Peter's just reminding these believers, guess what? It's God's will that we go through suffering. And as you go through suffering, you need to realize that if you respond properly, God actually is ministering grace to you. You find grace at the Father's right hand alongside of him. And you need, uh, um, Josh is asking, is anybody else, is the sound cutting in and out? Anybody else having that problem? Because maybe it's on my end. Okay, Ronnie says it's not happening there, so. Okay. And Ben says they're good. Okay, so no. So no, Ronnie says they're fine. Ben Orr says they're good. So, okay. Sorry, Josh. It's always frustrating. Yeah. Mike Orth says no. I appreciate everybody chiming in. This is, uh, this is good. But sorry for Josh and Faye and the kids. 
we're going to suffer and there's a way to do it. And sometimes you're going to suffer and it won't be fair. Just that's fine. And when it's not fair, it like Jesus Christ and just entrust yourself to God. He will, he's able to look out for you. He's able to care for you and take care of you going through the suffering, not necessarily take the suffering away. That's what we want, right? When we go through suffering, our first thing is God, I don't want to suffer. Make it go away. You know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, Hey, you've got this physical problem. God, take it away. I don't want to deal with this. I want, I just want to be healthy. I just want to be good. And, uh, God says, no, you're going to glorify me by going through this hardship. And that's one of the things in, tr in terms of this. Now, the next passage here uh, that I want to look at is in um, chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to go down to verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. This is... If you, if you read through the whole book of 1 Peter, you'll find out that the issue of suffering and such is actually like primarily one of the key issues. This is the key issue in this, le in this letter. And it the other point, which I hadn't really pointed out at the beginning, is in this letter, Peter is trying to say, you know, this is grace too. Because a lot of Christians go, hey, it's grace from God that I'm that he says all these good things about me in Christ. It's grace from God that he provides this. It's grace from God from this. And Peter says, and it's grace alongside of God, right there, when you can suffer well. And so we don't, that's that's what well, we don't want that one, Peter. We want the good grace. We want the grace where everything's sweet. We want to be able to take a nice Sunday afternoon stroll. You know, we don't want to be running from wolves, Peter. That's not the kind of grace we want. And uh so, verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal. And that word fiery ordeal that he's going through is uh, that word translated ordeal in the New American Standard is our word for a temptation. So the fiery temptation among you, which comes upon you then. Uh, oh, I think this is where they actually have the word uh temptation is for your testing, but that'd be the word temptation, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're happy ones, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. If one is, suffers as a Christian, then let him not be ashamed, but in this let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God, and if it begins first from us, what is the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with scarcity, difficulty, or just slightness that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So like we had in uh, chapter 2, he again is talking about this issue of suffering, but here he's bringing it out and he says that some of these believers were looking at it like it's a fiery thing. And Peter doesn't say it's not a fiery thing, but some of them are looking, this is strange. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And again, modern Christianity, where we try to present Christianity and the gospel as though it'll solve all your problems. I, I still, I just, just always challenge you, go back and review the gospel. Go back and look at it in Acts 10, where Peter 
goes through the gospel. Go over in Acts 13 where Paul goes through the gospel and look anywhere in there that they ever do any of the pop things that we do. Ask Jesus into your heart. There's none of that in those chapters. Uh, turn your life over to him. Choose, say, I will commit myself to follow you. There's none of that nonsense in there. All those things are human additions that we add to the gospel. And you don't see in there, hey, take Jesus and he'll make everything go sweet for you. No, I know, I know. Unless they're really, really way out, way off base, they're not going to say, he'll make everything sweet for you. He'll make everything everything go right. But there is a lot of nonsense that passes for this idea where there are people that present the gospel as though Christ is going to solve your problems. He's going to solve a particular problem that you have, and that is the fact that you are not righteous with God because you're a sinner. And that's the problem that he's first and foremost really going to deal with. Uh, now, there are promises in the Christian life, but you don't hold those out to the unsaved. So he says, don't think it strange. Don't be standing going, hey, what's the deal with this? Why, why is life so hard? Why, why are people not treating me well? I don't get this. I didn't know I didn't sign on for this. <laughs> he says, don't think it's strange. He says, it's a temptation. Now, why does he say it's a temptation? Because guess what? When you go through harsh treatment, when people don't treat you well, Satan's going to use that as a temptation for you to say, uh, Maybe you just need to back off and say, eh, God's not that important to me. I, I'm okay. And you're, you know, you're, you're, you're okay. You're still a Christian, but they don't have to know that. So you can be a Christian in secret. And, uh, which is probably a part of the problem in, uh, Philipp or in, excuse me, in first Peter is that some of these believers are kind of trying to keep their heads down and keep out of the line of fire. And that is not, uh, what they're supposed to be doing. So they're being tempted. And you have an example of this over, if you look in Revelation chapter 2 for a moment. In Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and um, I want you to look at, uh, well, let's go just to verse 10. He's talking to the church at Smyrna, but Revelation 2.10, he says, Do not fear what you were about to suffer. Look. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you will be tempted and you will have tribulation or adversity for 10 days, but be faithful to death and I will give you a crown of life. Crown of life because because uh, James tells us uh, in, um, uh, because James tells us in, um, pardon me, uh, in James chapter one and verse 12, that there's a crown of life when you endure temptation. So when you endure temptation, according to James 1.12, there's a crown of life. Well, these people, they're, gonna, they're going through uh, temptation by being thrown into prison, being apparently threatened with death, and some of them might even have died uh, is, as martyrs in this case. But he says, be faithful to that. There's a crown of victory, crown of life, because you actually have lived out a Christian life by uh, doing the right thing here, even in the midst of something very harsh. And so, yes, temptations come sometimes through suffering. So let's go back then to 1 Peter 4 in verse 13, where it says then, but even as then you, you share together in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. Now, probably when he's talking about the sufferings of Christ, I don't, in my opinion, I don't think he's talking here about Christ's sufferings back at the cross. I believe this is like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, this is how Christ suffers right now with his church. 
Because right now, Christ, when believers are suffering, remember what Jesus Christ said to Paul when he met him on the road to Damascus, recorded in Acts chapter 9 and a couple of the other accounts. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, why are you persecuting me? See, the attacks on the church, Christ took those sufferings personally, and we also get to share in those same sufferings with other believers. And so he says, even as you share then in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing in this so that at the revelation of his glory, that is when Jesus Christ appears and we get to see him as he is and we get to see his glory, you might rejoice with exultation. Um, I have to see if I wrote this down because I'm trying to remember how there's a German uh there was a German a man that's done like a little Bible study book. Oh, exuberantly happy. That's the word. Exaltation. I remember when I was first year in seminary and we're having to really add a lot of vocabulary, Greek vocabulary really fast. And so in one of our books, we had this, this word that occurs fairly often, but it's E-X-U-L-T. And I turned to my professor. I said, isn't that E-X-A-L-T? No, it's not exalt. It's exult. And I was like, well, what? I've never even heard the word exult before, but this is the way all the dictionaries write it. It's not a word we use in modern English. You never look at your kids saying, are you kids exulting about going to Dairy Queen, you know, or going to the fair? But you know what you could say? You kids are pretty excited about it, aren't you? You're exuberant. And that's what he says here is here's a promise. If you actually endure suffering in the way God wants you to, if, you're, if you look at it as sharing or participating in the sufferings that Christ suffers along with the whole body of Christ here, when he's re revealed, you really are going to get to be exuberantly happy. How about that? That's something to look forward to. I think that's something he brings out here, exuberantly happy, because if you're really suffering, you're not going, whoo, let's do the happy dance. I don't know if anybody watched that this last week. Um, Mercy Me put that up, the happy dance song. Uh, it's They did it in their quarantine like this, but it's one of the songs that they've done. And, you know, is that what we're going to do? Hey, I'm suffering for Christ. Woo, 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 woo. You know, we don't, we don't do a happy dance. But he says there's a time coming in which there's going to be not just, you're not just going to go, hey, we're all glorified now. Good. Suffering was good. We're fine. We're all... No, there's going to be an exuberant happiness in all of what we've gone through. And kind of as Paul says over in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of this present life, they are going to be so pale in comparison to the glory revealed by us when we see Christ as he is. He goes on, he says in verse 4, therefore, if you are reviled, uh, and this word reviled that he uses, uh, verse 14, uh, Peggy corrected me here. Uh, if somebody treats you with, with kind of uh, a contempt, a harsh uh, ridiculing dis, uh, uh, contempt for you, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Oh, they hide that word. It's, it drives me nuts. This is a New American Standard. It's a modern translation. I don't know. Why don't they translate it happy? Because that's what this word is. It's makarios. Happy are you. You're happy. Peter and John were threatened, beaten, left, and said they were, or said they went away rejoicing. Now, not to say happy and kicking their feet, but they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer on behalf of Christ. Well, Peter says, hey, if you endure these things, if people ridicule you, if people treat you harshly with contempt, guess what? You can be happy ones because 
the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, we have different words for rest in the New Testament, but this particular word rest, anapao, has the idea of to refresh oneself, to get refreshment. So I think of sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're really, really hot, and uh, uh, Ben was out. We, I, some of you benefited from this the other day when the oars were going around to people's houses and were pulling weeds and, and doing the, taking the lawn plugs out with the aerator. And Ben's out there. He's been doing this. And I went inside and got Ben a, a glass of water because I'm thinking, man, if I'd be me, I'd be breathing through my mouth and I'd be dry. I'd be really parched. So I took a glass of water out to me. And he says, thank you. And he drinks about half of it. I would have guzzled the whole thing and said, hey, can I have another? That's me. Uh, because I'm dry. But that idea of that refreshment, you know, when you're hot and you're dry and you're working hard and then you take some cool water and it's refreshing to you. And he says the spirit refreshes himself on those believers that what? Are being insulted and they're actually able to, and they're, in, and they're being insulted really because of Christ-like character. Let's keep going. Verse 15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, a busybody. It's real easy sometimes when we're going through hard things for people to justif justify making really foolish or bad choices. And there have been people that because of their suffering have murdered. There's been people that have justified stealing. There have been people that have justified doing other bad things including sticking their nose in everybody else's business because they're suffering. And they use that as a justification. And he says, you know, it's kind of like what he said earlier in chapter 2. If you suffer for those things, that's not grace. And that's not a source of happiness if you're suffering for doing something wrong or stupid. But, verse 16, but if any then, and he is this an ellipsis in the Greek, which is why the words anyone suffers, if those are in italics in your Bible, it's because they're they're assumed from the previous statement. But if as a Christian they suffer, if anyone suffers as a Christian, what's a Christian? It's an anointed one. It's a it's a form of the word anointed, but it's in a diminutive form, meaning it's you're a little anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. We are little anointed ones. We have the same spirit in us that was upon Christ that anointed him to do in some of the things that, to do some of the things that he did during his earthly ministry. So if you suffer because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, do not be ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Now keep your finger here and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, at the end of the chapter, we have the fruit from the Spirit, beginning in verse 20, uh, 22. He says, Galatians 5, 22, But the fruit from the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, uh, gentleness, or meekness, self-control, and against such things there's no law. And now we have this statement in verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, and it's actually just Christ, uh, the Christ Jesus probably is not best. And it's not belong to. This is simply a genitive form of the word Christ. And it's not emphasizing his possession of us. It's emphasizing, in this case, description. Those that have the character or could be described as being like Christ. That's what he's getting at. In other words, when you are living out the fruit from the Spirit, those nine qualities, 
You're Christ-like. You're Christ-like when you have those qualities. That's what he means by this first statement here at the first part of verse 24. There's no word belong in there. It's just that you're, you have Christ-like character. Now, who produces that? Well, he said the Spirit. That's why it's called the fruit from the Spirit. He doesn't call it the, spirit, the fruit of Christ. He calls it here the fruit from the Spirit. And yet it's Christ-like character. Why? Because you can't produce Christ-like character on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to produce it. And if you take that, and you put that together with what Peter says back there in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16, what does it mean to be an anointed one? It means that the Spirit is in you, and the Spirit that is in you now as this anointed one is doing something through you. And what is he doing through you? If he's working through you, if you're, if you're not impeding his work in your life by trying to do it by yourself through your flesh, he's producing Christ-likeness. And these people then would suffer for, not for being a murderer or thief, but suffering for having love and joy and peace and being long-suffering or patient with others and goodness. And, in other words, they're... And remember, that shouldn't surprise us because this is... We looked at this a couple weeks ago at the end of John 15 and John 16. The world hated Christ because of his character. They, they hated him because... When they all thought that they were good, hey, we're all good, we're all good, and they're just comparing each other and themselves, and then Christ comes along, and then they see what a real righteous, real kind, real gracious, loving individual is really like. They realized how pathetic their life was. How pathetic it actually looked, because it was riddled with sin, and it was just riddled with selfishness. And so he says, if you suffer as an anointed one, don't be ashamed. But in the name, in, in, but in that name or in that character, glorify God. Verse 17 now, 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, the way most people understand this is, is that Peter is saying, hey, it's time to God start judging his house. But that's not what he's talking about. Because God technically doesn't judge the church. He disciplines believer. There's a couple statements where there's a thing of judgment, but like over in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, and when you are judged, really you're chastened. It's discipline. What he's saying is that judgment begins from the house of God. Now, how does it do that? How does it do that? Well, let's go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter one. And uh, uh, I'm well, I'm just trying to decide where to put in. I had this written down on my other notes, but I didn't transfer it to these, sorry. Um, so um, let's go to let's go to verse four. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you or boast among you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment that you are considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire. Now, without getting into the details, he's simply saying, 
You go through affliction right now. Be guaranteed God's going to pay back on those people the way they have treated you. Now, maybe not you specifically, but believers in general. Because, well, think of that. First century Christians, the people that tormented them, caused them problems, those people have died. Yes, they're going to get the lake of fire, but they're not going to go through Daniel's 70th week. And this really has two points of view. You get relief. You actually get relief at the rapture, but you're getting relief. You're still getting relief when Christ comes back to actually deal with these people and to bring about judgment on them. And that's when those people, uh, it's, it's going to drive them nuts to realize you and I have gotten relief when they're being, and they're, when they're dealing with suffering and they're going to suffer way more than anything they ever did to us. Way, way, way more than anything. That's not even going to come close by comparison. And so, our conduct, our lifestyle, actually says something about them. Turn back over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to go to verse 13. Ephesians 5, 13, it says, But all things become visible when they are exposed to the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, arise out from among dead ones, and Christ will shine by means of you. In other words, he, Paul's using this to encourage the fact that there are some believers that they don't look a lot different than, than the unsaved. They're sleeping. The unsaved are dead. The believers are sleeping, and they're like in a morgue, and it's like you don't know any difference. And so he says, wake up. Wake up, you believers. Christ can shine through you by means of you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. And so he's actually trying to tell these people, do you realize that your conduct among them <clears throat> reproves those unsaved people as they, well, if you go back to verse 13, it's exposed by the light or reproved by the light. When other, when other words, when you're living the Christian life the way you're supposed to, that reproves them. It makes it stand out. You can be turning back to 1 Peter 4, but I'll, I've used this illustration before. I was stupid. I didn't really understand the Christian life very well when I was in college, and I worked in a warehouse. And I worked with, just worked with a bunch of guys that basically were really, well, they were unsafe people. And they had a few things that were on their mind all the time, and the conversations just degenerated all the time. And I used to just turn to them, and I said, can we talk about something else? And I, do, I just was like, man, you guys are just crude, you know? the way they talked all the time like this. And you know what? Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say I reprove them by saying, hey, you're talking crudely. Would you stop that? I don't want to hear that. You reprove them by the way you live. You just don't have to, you just don't have to be a part of that. You don't have to, you don't have to respond that way to you know, the way they respond. And that's what he's saying. You just live right. You don't have to be telling them all the time. In fact, I think that's one of the wrong things that Christians do is that we always tell unsaved people to not do bad things, and yet God never tells us to tell unsaved people to stop doing being bad. You just are supposed to live your life the way you're, the way God wants you to live it. Just your living properly without ever standing around verbally condemning them for their activities. 
that is reproof. And that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5. So back over here in 1 Peter chapter 4, when he says in verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin from, literally from the house of God. It's like we are a source of judgment. If we live right, those people would stand there. And yes, they persecute Christians because they realize, just like they realize with Christ, they come short. And it bugs them to no end. It annoys them. It frustrates them. And so they brought persecution. So he says, it's time for judgment to start from the house of God. In other words, you and I should be living in such a way that God can actually use us simply to point out by the contrast of our lifestyle, not by us being goody two-shoes, being puritanical, thinking we're better than them, trying to, oh, I don't participate in that. You know, it's not like that. It's just that just to live a real, righteous, loving, caring life. That would be so different than what they actually see. And he says, if we would do that, then he goes, and if it starts first with us, what is the outcome of those that don't obey the gospel then? I mean, in other words, if, if it starts with God using us, what is the end of those guys going to be? Because it starts with the way we live. In fact, he goes on and he says, verse 18, he makes this quotation from the Old Testament by a comparison. And if with difficulty, or literally with scarcity, the righteous is saved. That word that's difficulty in some of our Bibles is literally a word, it's scarcely. In other words, right now, we're just barely saved. Now I look and say, I'm really saved. But Peter says, in the eternal scheme of things, when you see what, when we actually are fully saved, we're going to look back at what we've had at the present time, and it's going to really look like we were just barely saved. We just got our foot in the door. And so he says, if it is with scarcity or just barely that the righteous is saved, what becomes of the godless man and the sinner? In other words, because they're not saved at all. And if we're just barely saved and judgment begins from God judging them with just the little bit that we have right now, and it's a big deal to us right now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way trying to minimize it. Neither is Peter, but Peter's just putting it in perspective. We're just barely saved in, on one, on, from one perspective. And yet if God can use that as a basis for judgment, where do those guys end up? They've got nothing. Therefore, much like he said about what Jesus Christ did at the end of chapter 2. He says here, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, you're suffering for the right way. God wants you to suffer, and you're doing it according to God's will, the way he wants it to happen. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, souls here could be a metonymy. It could be a, a statement, a part of us for the whole. It could just mean trust their lives. But I don't think, I think he's really talking about their souls because if you go through 1 Peter, does persecution hurt? Yeah. Does being mistreated by other people hurt? Yeah. And so where do you feel that hurt? You feel it in your soul. It's pain. Your soul doesn't like this. I don't like to go through these things. It's no fun. I don't like this. But you can actually entrust your soul to God and say, God, I need help in my soul because it hurts. I don't like this. Now, maybe next week, I haven't decided. I was going to maybe do it this week. I've included it as an outline attached on the end of this, the last part of it, which goes back to dealing with a, a question we, we, or a point that we made when we were looking at those promises in Hebrews a couple weeks back. 
where he says that we're those that possess the soul. And it's a question, how do you possess the soul? And I believe that there are, and I this outline certainly isn't exhaustive, but we may come back and talk about that next week. How do you actually possess your soul? How do you take control of that? But here in this context, he says you can entrust your soul to God. It's one of the things that you do. Now, the promises in both of these passages are, you know, when you suffer for the right things over there in chapter 2, that's, that's a promise. That's grace from alongside of God. God actually is administering grace, and one of the things you get from the administration of grace is strength in the inner man. Here the promise is that because you live the way God wants you to, and you suffer for doing the right things, and how do you have those right character? Through the Holy Spirit who anoints you, that when a belief, when the Holy Spirit has a believer, he's in every single believer today, but when those believers in whom the Holy Spirit is, he's in all of us, when believers live the way they're supposed to, and suffer for that, because the Spirit's producing that character, the Spirit kind of goes, ah, and I, and I don't in any way want to be cruel or mean to believers in general. I'm including myself in this, but it's like sometimes the Spirit's in all of us, and sometimes there might just be so few believers that actually are, that actually really let Him produce real Christ-likeness through them, especially when we go through hard things, that it's like the Spirit, when He does find that believer that does suffer for the right reason, the Spirit goes, oh, finally, oh, glass of cold water, oh, that's good. And it's just uh, obviously a metaphor that he's using for what the Spirit has, how he relates, how he appreciates a believer that suffers, suffers for the right purpose, the, the right reason. That's a good thing. And you could be that. And that's a promise. That's a promise. Hope you get that. For us, that the Spirit can actually refresh himself. I think my wife has a question over here. So at the end of verse 19, that's good things. Yeah, he switched. Yeah, he's talking about. He's saying right things. Oh, oh, right things. Yeah, in good, in doing good. So they're doing good. And what would be do? What would do, doing good involve? Probably primarily for ministering to other believers. But you can do good unto all men. Galatians chapter six verse ten. You ought to do good unto all men as you have opportunity. And so as you do good unto those other people, uh, sometimes you might catch some ridicule for it. You might catch a lot of flack as a Christian for doing the right things or the good things. Yeah, my wife's trying to correct me. The good things, the things that really are good, that really make for a real sense of well-being. Okay. Anybody else have any questions? Mike unmuted himself, so I'm wondering if Mike has a comment here or a question. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, Tim, I really appreciated what you were saying there right at the end on First Peter four nineteen. I was thinking of First Peter two eleven and 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 uh, twenty five relative to the soul because you know it says our you know uh, you know we have the sin obviously is waging war against our soul against our emotions. Now it's interesting, isn't? It? I think it's First Peter one where he says that the outcome isn't the end point of your salvation is going to be the salvation of your souls. We know that. Uh, you know, we're spiritually as a tripartite being, we've got a new inner man, our spirit's been, been saved, but you know, our sin nature still has to, you know, still does wreak havoc on our, on our souls. But to me that, I don't know what, maybe it's just me and just, just right now, but, but it's interesting because it, it talks about at the end of first Peter two, that 
that, that, that he's actually, Jesus Christ is actually a shepherd or overseer of our souls. He knows we have a weakness there. He knows our salvation is depleted relative to that, but yet he is an overseer of that. And that's, that to me was, that was just encouraging to me to think about that. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and just, just to capitalize on, think about that in the realm of his human nature, he had a soul. So he knew what it was like to experience pain and suffering in the realm of a soul. He didn't have a fallen soul, but he could still experience pain and suffering in that real human soul. Thank you. Anybody else have any comments or questions to add? Yeah, unmute yourself. All you white names on black backgrounds. I guess not. Let's close with a word of prayer then today. Father, uh, we are thankful that you have given to each and every one of us as a believer the Holy Spirit. Uh, and among the many things that he does in our lives, he can cause us or can give us the ability to have Christ-likeness. He's the one that produces real, genuine Christ-likeness in it. We don't do that. He does that. And we're thankful for that. And sometimes for that real, genuine Christ-likeness, we will suffer. And help us when we go through that. Even though our souls do, do not like the pain, they do not like the agony, they do not like the ostracization or whatever else it may be involved, Lord, let us entrust our souls to the one that really cares about them. Remembering that your, your son, our good shepherd, he is the one that actually looks out for our souls. Thank you for this time together uh, and ask that you might help us to be those that really would be entrusting ourselves on a daily basis to your care. Amen. <laughs> Quite <Hey>. stealthily <laughs> she sneaks in here and I'm like,